Hello and welcome to Careers in Analytical Chemistry, the podcast for CHY213. I'm your host, Dr. Darius Rackus. This podcast hosts different speakers who work with or in the field of analytical chemistry, ranging from government, academia, and industry. Today's guest is Dr. Juris Maya. Juris works at a government organization in Canada. He is involved in many aspects of analytical chemistry, including working with the global governing body to set the definitions we all take for granted. Without further ado, let's go meet him. Okay, today I'm joined by Juris Meyer at NRC in Ottawa, and I'll let him tell us about what he does. But I'd first like to say welcome to the podcast and thanks for joining us today, Juris. Thank you. Great to have you. So Iris, I mentioned you work at NRC. Can you tell us what is NRC? And then specifically tell us a little bit about the division within that organization that you work for and what they do? Yes. So the NRC is short for the National Research Council of Canada. It's the Canada's largest federal research and development organization. So we have over 4,000 employees throughout the Canada. So we're not just focused in Ottawa or Toronto for that matter. And we conduct a wide variety of research and development activities, not just to benefit to Canadians, but also to our international partners. So the kind of things NRC does are quite varied and range from, for example, from very fundamental science projects, such as the construction of the world's best balance a few years back, to very, very practical projects, which would resonate to everybody, such as research work on seafood safety, or even the recently finished facility in Montreal to manufacture COVID-19 vaccines for Canada starting next year. You know, we go from what people call the blue sky to all the way to, to the shop floor, so to speak. Excellent. And which division within NRC do you specifically work for? So I work for a research center that's called NRC Metrology, not to be confused, of course, with meteorology, (laughs) right? So metrology is science of measurement. And so we focus, as our name would imply, on all aspects on the science of measurement and not just science, but also the creation of measurement standards. Okay, so this is measurement is what analytical chemistry is all about. It's measurement in the context of the chemical space or or chemistry. But I assume you guys also go beyond just applications in chemistry. Is that correct? Yes. So NRC metrology basically covers the entire metric system in a sense that, you know, all the basic seven units. So we're not tied to chemistry, although I am mostly working in chemistry, but metrology and its basic tools, of course, transcend chemistry. And so if you can think of in a simple example is that all measurements, doesn't matter if it's chemistry or physics, biology, all measurements have standards. And we often take those standards for granted. I mean, for example, every single mass weighing in Canada can be linked to a single Canadian kilogram prototype. I mean, we call it the case 74. And in turn, all, all countries have such prototypes and they all in turn are linked to an international prototype. So, and same goes for other measurements. At the end of the day, they all rely on some physical standards. They rely on the best practices, how to use these standards. So that's the science part. And of course, on international conventions. And so at the end of the day, metrology deals with all three of these aspects. And it's all about how to improve measurements. Okay, thanks. You mentioned that there's an international component to the work that NRC does. And I know that you're involved with an organization that students might have heard of 
when they were learning how to name organic molecules, which is yes. IUPAC, uh, the International Union of Pure and Applied Chemists. Can you tell me about what you do with IUPAC and, and maybe uh, the different hats you wear between NRC and, and IUPAC? So as I mentioned, metrology deals with the three activities, right? You need to be good scientists to improve measurements. You need to develop good standards so that others can actually make good measurements with your standards. And last is you need to be a good diplomat because unlike our laws or traditions, right, the scientific conventions tend to be uniform across the world, right? So what UPAC does in that sense is that for chemists specifically, it provides a platform for metrologists like myself to promote these best scientific practices and actually make them into international conventions. You can think of this as an applied service to the community of chemists worldwide, where we, we simply identify the, the best scientific outcomes and conventions, and we try to codify them for the rest of the world. So what sort of conventions or codifications have you been involved in with IUPAC? So I deal with, it, it might sound strange because I'm, I'm an analytical chemist. I, I'm trained as an analytical chemist, but, but I, I represent in UPAC in organic chemistry division, and which is largely because that's where historically all the things related to isotopes have been put. So I work in organic chemistry division in its uh, oldest committee, which is the Atomic Weights Commission. So that's the, the commission where we decide what the atomic weights ought to be on all the elements. So when I'm looking at my periodic table, here on the wall, those numbers, those are decided by a committee, presumably based off of measurements, but you are contributing to those those numbers that we see on our periodic tables in the classrooms, in our textbooks, and wherever else we might have them pasted up in our lives. That's pretty cool. I know you've also been involved in something very fundamental to chemistry and very fundamental to analytical chemistry beyond just the periodic table, but also related, which is the definition of a mole. Can you tell me what is a mole? I can tell you what is the mole. Yes. Okay. What is the Uh, mole? (laughs) Yes. Yes. It's unfortunately one of the things that a lot of uh, students and professors talk about over and over and there's not much clarity, unfortunately, on it. And yes, one of the things I was fortunate enough to be involved in UPAC was in actually writing the current definition of the mall. But before we get into that, really, I guess the question is, what is the mall if you step back? So when we perform chemical measurements, that by definition means these are not any measurements, these are chemical measurements. So we use chemistry or, or chemical reactions to be specific to actually compare the amount of chemicals, right? Mm-hmm. So for example, we can compare the amounts of acids and bases by simply titrating them on and, and, and so on. And so historically, chemists simply took one gram of the lightest element, hydrogen, and just agreed that that's, let's call that the unit. So the whatever the amount is in the one gram of the lightest element would be called one mole. Of course, things have changed a bit over the last 200 years, but the base basic idea is the same. That's how much stuff you would have in one gram of hydrogen. Of course, we now have 12 grams of carbon-12, but that's it's really at the end of the day the same thing. Yeah, I think 12 grams of carbon-12 was the definition I learned in, in my undergrad in high school. But what is the definition of the mole today? So remember that the, the chemical measurements ultimately compare the number of molecules between the between the substances uh, that we have at hand. And, and scientists have always been curious to know just exactly how many of these atoms are there in that one mole. And it's important that we don't really need to know this number. We don't really care about that number. But of course, as scientists, we are 
we're very curious and we want to know it, right? We want to know how much, we don't just want to know whether there is a more amount, more atoms in this sample than in that sample. We also want to know exactly how many. And so to answer that question, of course, somebody had to figure out a way how to measure it. Well, Albert Einstein did. So he put forward fundamental theories, uh, believe it or not, on how to measure that, how to get that number in one mole, the number of molecules in one mole. And the French scientist Perrin, Jean Perrin, used these ideas of Einstein and to actually to determine the Avogadro number and got the Nobel Prize for this in the 1920s. So Perrin got the Avogadro number to, I think, only one significant digit. So not too many digits, right? Mm. It's six times 10 to the power of 23. And fast forward 100 years, so to about 10 years ago, scientists had perfected these measurements to the point that we now were able to have eight to nine significant digits, right? So much, much more digits than, than Perrin got the Nobel Prize for. And so this extreme precision in knowing how many molecules there are in this one gram of hydrogen or 12 grams of carbon 12 now allowed us to, to take the old definition and turn it around and specify the exact number of atoms for the first time, instead of just saying that it is however many atoms there are in exactly 12 grams of carbon 12, right? So, so that was the paradigm shift is that the improvements in measurement science allowed us to, Peter Atkins did say, cut to the core of the meaning of the mole and get rid of the old definition that specifies really inexact number of atoms and, and turn that into something that specifies exact number of atoms. The important thing is all this is that these improvements happen not because we needed them, because there is no benefit whatsoever in actual chemistry. So some people will say, why do we need to change this definition? But we did change this definition because we could, right? And that's how often science works. We make these advances and, and changes, not because we have to solve some immediate burning problem that we couldn't measure the you know, amount of carbon or something, but, but we are basically paving the way for the future generations to have a much more exact definition of the mole. And this exact definition, this has been, been coming with sort of the trend in defining other units, right? Like the kilogram and moving away from physical standards and moving towards physical constants and using the physical constants as definitions of, of our basic units, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. We have Planck constant for kilogram and charge of electron for the ampere and so on. So you mentioned another term earlier on, which is standards. And this was in the context of the kilogram that we have in Canada and related to standards are things called reference materials. So can you tell us a little bit about what a reference material is and how it compares maybe to a standard? What's the difference between these two ideas and what goes into defining a reference material? So reference materials, or as we more properly, I guess, call them uh, certified reference materials, these are just physical artifacts. They are important ways by which chemists can easily demonstrate that their measurements are reliable, right? So it's important because at the end of the day, uh, measurements are done every day all over the world and, and variety of laboratories. And we have to be able to trust these results, right? We have to be able to trust our medical tests or, or the doping tests from the Olympics for that matter, right? So if we cannot trust these results, then of course, course, what happens is either the decisions we make are questionable or we have to redo these results. And so that costs lots of money, right? So we make those reference materials so that the testing laboratories all around the world and not just in Canada can basically lean on us, lean on our expertise and work and use us as a, as a source of traceability and reliability. But of course, everybody, the first question they ask about reference materials is that if the National Metrology Institute, such as ourselves, if we make the reference materials, how do we calibrate ourselves? 
right, who calibrates us. And it's not a simple answer to this, but of course, the, the simple answer would be that we, we typically spend enormous efforts and enormous resources to make sure our measurements are reliable. So we don't just spend an afternoon to do a measurement. We spend years to make, to perfect these measurements, right? And so all that, of course, you know, builds the case that we know what we're doing in a sense, trust us because we have all this, you know, years and efforts put in. But it's not just that we're asking everybody to take us at our word. So the reference material makers around the world, such as NRC, there's a club, so to speak, for them, which is called the International Bureau of Weights and Measures in France. They are the guardians of the metric system. And there, in that uh, bureau, we do something that amounts to our own Olympic Games, where basically all the reference makers around the world come together, typically once a year or so, and we all agree to a certain analyte, let's say arsenic in rice, you know, because that's important. And then we would send the same sample around all these material makers. And so they analyzed, nobody knows what the true value is. Nobody talks to each other. And then we come back and we compare our results. And this is done not just because well, it's fun kind of, right? You want to know if you could do the best measurement and if you agree with others. But ultimately, this is all done to improve our own methods and to demonstrate that we can indeed perform reliable measurements so that we can be trusted. So let's take that example of arsenic and rice as a tangible example. So just thinking about why I would want the reference material. So if I'm an analytical chemist and I'm working in food chemistry and I want to be able to measure and make sure that the samples of rice that I'm getting from a company or from a farm, they have a certain level or hopefully no arsenic in them. Is it right that the reference material that you're talking about, arsenic and rice, I would use that to set up my calibrations because it already has the matrix of rice present and all the matrix effects would be incorporated then into my calibration curve. Is that correct? Yes. I mean, there's many ways you can use these standards. You can use them to, yes, as you said, to calibrate, but you can also use those standards simply as an external crutch, so to speak, that you you make your methods, you make your calibrations, you make your own standards. Don't worry about these CRMs at all. And then use them as a as an unknown sample, basically, and see if you get the same result that's on a certificate. Okay, so you can you can do it the opposite yeah. way, essentially, right? Yeah. You can use it as sort of a reference check as well for your own yeah. method. The problem is, of course, if you if you get the same result and everybody's happy and you move on, but if you get the wrong result, then of course the question is, what do you do? Do you change your methods so you you keep the same methods, but you somehow you know introduce a fudge factor so that your wrong results agree with the certified results? So you know there's there's many ways you can solve the problem, right? If you if you run into discrepancies. Can you give us some other examples of different types of reference materials? Yes. I mean, with, with NRC, we have hundreds of them. I, I mentioned earlier, we have, for example, a reference material for shellfish toxins. And these are the kind of things you need to know if you go to a restaurant and order seafood, right? So you want to make sure there is no shellfish toxins. So somebody has to test these muscles before, right? So we have standards for those. We even have a standard for COVID spike protein. We have standards for cannabis because price of, of cannabis, for example, is largely determined by the levels of THC, right? And so, of course, you can't trust the individual labs because they would tell you that there is much higher THC levels than there there might be actually, right? To, because it would benefit them. So, so you would need all kinds of standards for all kinds of, not just bad things like arsenic or shellfish, but also for good things like arguably, for example, the THC, right? Or, you know, you would need standards for the ethanol, for example, in, in breath analyzers, right? They have to be calibrated. I mean, the list is, is never ending and this is just chemistry standards, right? 
Mm -hmm. So anything that we can measure, you guys, if you don't have a standard for it, you're working on it or it's in the pipeline. I would think so. I mean, we, you know, and again, NRC is just one institute. NRC Metrology is just one of the players worldwide. So usually you would look around with also with other uh, similar institutes like NIST in US and if we don't have it, somebody else would have it. Great. I want to switch direction now and talk a little bit about your career path and how you ended up where you are. So maybe we can go all the way back to your undergrad. What did you do your undergrad in? Where did you do it? And then what did you do after that? So I did my undergrad in country far, far away from here in Latvia. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you know, in undergrad, you don't have a, a really a specialty, but you end up having some specialty. And mine was analytical chemistry. And, and I was working on uh, figuring out how you could measure the levels of bromates, which are bad in drinking water when you ozonate it. And we had to find ways to come up with cheap methods that don't rely on expensive instruments to, to see if, if you're drinking water in the capital city would have these bromates in them. So that was fun. And then after your undergrad, did you go into industry or did you go for further studies? After that, I, I wanted to study abroad. So I went around and I got offered to study in the United States. I didn't switch much fields. I, I simply continued studying analytical chemistry. But of course, you know, being in US, you get a front seat to the newest and shiniest and perhaps most expensive instruments out there. And so I was working largely with the collaboration with Berkeley in California. There's lots of semiconductors to mm -hmm. semiconductor industry. And, and long story short, they end up polluting soil with selenium. And so somebody has to clean it up. And of course, it's not going to be us. It's going to be somebody else. And so they found out, the biologists at Berkeley, that you can use plants to basically suck all the selenium out of soil and basically let the mother nature you know, remediate the soil. And so I was working with those biologists I was the analytical chemist to basically guide them what genetic modifications to do, because as chemists, analytical chemists, we can measure the kind of things they're looking for, and then we can guide them in their important work. Oh, exciting. Then after your PhD, did you come straight to Canada and to NRC, or do you do something else in between? So I guess in, in between, I got hired by Procter & Gamble. I, I did some work for them, but I was a consulting work. So it was kind of a, an interesting hybrid for a while to do to do academic consulting in the top company in the world. But then that was a kind of a short-term gig. And then I moved straight to NRC to basically move from applied analytical chemistry to more theoretical and more fundamental analytical chemistry. And so thinking about your role now at NRC, what sort of transferable skills? So, so not the technical skills that you've developed over years of training, but what we sometimes call the soft skills or transferable skills, do you use in your daily work? Yeah, that's a good question because most people think of scientists as just, you know, doing science, right? I guess for lack of a better word. So I, I think that the, the most obvious skill that is very transferable and that most scientists should cherish is, of course, the critical thinking. Because the way we approach to any problem, literally any problem, is we, we look at things through a different lens than majority of other people. So that's something that we shouldn't take for granted because we can take that and literally apply to any kind of problems outside academia. But in my own work, and I think for many scientists today, the ability to code, the ability to speak in computer language, literally is becoming a very important asset. 
And that's something that could be transferable because of course, you know, we, we live in a digital world. So if you can talk code, that already puts you in a whole different ballgame. And I guess one more thing that for me, more personally, that I find an important skill that's very transferable is that the, the work on the various national and even international science committees really makes you a good diplomat in the end. So that's the skill that could be transferred quite easily to many other fields, right? Mm, yeah, interesting. Yeah, I never really think of science and having to be diplomatic and maybe a bit of a, a good politician. But what you've been talking about in terms of convincing other organizations within IUPAC or other scientists that this is what the measurement of bismuth is supposed to be or, you know, what the atomic weight of, of fluorine should be. And these are the measurements to back it up. You know, you have to go and add it with a bit of grace but still convince them that, that your definition is the right one. Yeah, because science is run by people. And at the end of the day, everything has to be agreed upon by people, right? Because science doesn't speak for itself. You know, scientists speak. And this diplomatic aspect of science is often also overlooked, right? Because scientists go to all these committees and set all these international standards and discuss and agree. And so that's that's all very much part of modern science, right? Yeah. And it's all consensus-based. Yeah. Just as we finish up here, our students listening to the podcast are undergraduate students, most of them second year undergraduates, and they might be thinking about co-op opportunities or thinking about what to do after they finish their degrees. I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about co-op programs or what entry-level positions might look like at NRC. And first of all, are there co-op programs within your division? Yes, at the NRC, we have uh, many opportunities each year for co-op students and, and summer students. You know, you have to look at the NRC website and, and there's always these positions are advertised and, and often they advertise through universities as well. But for that to happen, we need to have a direct involvement. And so not every university would, would have that through their own HR. And so again, that's NRC wide, right? So so yes, there are many opportunities and these are paid opportunities for most of the part. And the students get to work on real life problems. Right, and that's, so I think that's that's one of the best parts about being a co-op student or summer student at NRC that you're not just working on a homework assignment, right? You're working on a real life problem for somebody. In our group in chemical metrology, so such jobs, co-op students or summer student jobs could be as simple as, you know, doing sample preparation. So actual wet chemistry, so to speak, in support of an upcoming reference material. So you could be part of a new international standard for, let's say, arsenic in, in rice, or you could be doing an actual uh, support work. So actually running some instruments so you could try out and, and be part of doing science, or it could be entirely non-experimental at all. It could be entirely digital right? So because again, science is not just about experiments, science is also about gathering data, analyzing data and, and making sense of it all at the end. And so, so there's lots of opportunities. It all depends on what kind of interests uh, students would have. So I wouldn't, I would keep an open mind for these things. So don't think first of all, that you can't contribute possibly because, you know, you work with all kinds of world famous scientists and what have you, that there is always need for co-op students and, and summer students and, and a scientist. We're always glad to work with them because it's, it gives us an opportunity to also to better understand what is that we do and why we do these things, because now we have to explain them in a way that, for example, a first year undergrad can understand, right? Right. So, so just to remind everyone listening, if they are interested in a summer co-op position at NRC, they should head over to the NRC's website and look for opportunities. Absolutely. 
And whatever they end up doing, it's not going to be bringing coffee around to all the scientists. They're actually going to be in the lab or working with real data and making real meaningful contributions to the work that NRC does. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, we we had summer students who work, uh, let's say, I'm just giving two examples. We had summer students to work on the world's best balance. We had summer students to work on a three-dimensional x-ray scanner. So you could, you know, a camera, for example, that can tell where radioactive materials are. So these are very interesting real-life problems that in metrology, summer students uh, can be part of. So these are uh, exactly, as you said, these, this is not bringing coffee type of work. This is this is science and you get to learn and you you have to get on speed quite quickly because these are typically three to six months long, but they could be extended, right? If you do a good job, you you can always come back second and third time. And ultimately, many of these co-op student and summer student placements are one way for us to, to find out a good future employees actually at NRC. Great. Well, thank you, Yuris, for your time and for speaking with me about what you do. I hope all our students listening have enjoyed this. And if they have more questions, is it okay if I pass on your email address to them? Yes, why not? Today's podcast was produced by me, Darius Rakis, audio editing by Aline Garabedian, music by Scott Holmes and Kilo Bot. This has been Careers in Analytical Chemistry. Thanks for listening. Oh!